0: Welcome, everybody. My name is Mikhail Nasrani, and this is Islam for Christians, episode 35, Islamic History, circa 615 or 616, Seeking the Christian King. Ethiopia. Ethiopia is an ancient and unique place, also known as Aksum in the time of the Romans, also known as Abyssinia in the time of Muhammad. In the Western mind, to be honest, Ethiopia is largely considered just another African basket case. You know, one of those dysfunctional countries in a place where governments are expected to be dysfunctional. In the past few decades, we've only heard about famines and wars, both wars with Ethiopia's neighbors and a seemingly perpetual civil war within Ethiopia itself. And it certainly hurts the country's prestige to be constantly shrinking. You know, when I was a kid, Ethiopia went all the way to the Red Sea. Now it's a landlocked country. And new countries continue to pop up on its borders with Somalia and Sudan. Ethiopia is the epitome of an unstable country in an unstable region on an unstable continent. And the future doesn't look like it will be much different for more than 100 million people who call Ethiopia home. But it wasn't always this way. And Ethiopians could be forgiven for wanting to live in the past these days, because it's a pretty glorious past. Ethiopia has always been independent. Almost. It was the only ancient kingdom to survive the European scramble for Africa back in the 19th century, when they successfully fought off an Italian attempt at colonization. So Mussolini's Italy came back a little later, though, occupying Ethiopia for about six years. But that's just a footnote in Ethiopian history. And that's certainly something to be proud of for them. But what makes Ethiopia more interesting is its religious history. It was one of the first kingdoms to adopt Christianity, likely even before Constantine and the Romans. It is rumored to be the home of the Ark of the Covenant. You know, I knew several students from Ethiopia at the seminary, and they were convinced miracles happened all the time where they came from. And I believe them. It's a mystical place, really, And I'd love to visit someday, just to see if I could absorb some of the atmosphere, you know, that I kept on hearing about. Ethiopia is a majority Orthodox country, which seems odd when you look at its geography. Because it's surrounded by Islamic countries and places like Kenya, which converted to Christianity very recently due to European colonialism, but doesn't have that sort of ancient history that Ethiopia does. You know, Kenya doesn't have any Orthodox Christians. Well, they have some, but not many Orthodox Christians. You know, and why would they? Ethiopia is unique in its place in the world. The Orthodox Christians there are specifically Ethiopian Orthodox. It's just as important and indigenous to the country's culture as Greek Orthodox or Syriac Orthodox or Russian Orthodox. They have their own language and tradition which was maintained as the world continued to swirl around Ethiopia, but never really managed to penetrate it. When the Arabs swept through North Africa, they never made it down to Ethiopia. Yet they were cut off from the rest of the Orthodox world. Ethiopia, that is, was cut off from the rest of the Orthodox world. Though it used to be they had Orthodox neighbors in Egypt, and north through Byzantium and across the Middle East. But that all changed as the Muslims swept across the Middle East, but somehow never made it down to Ethiopia. Why not? Oddly, I've never found an entirely clear answer as to why the Ethiopians were left alone in the early Muslim conquests. Of course, Ethiopia is on the southern edge of the Sahara Desert. It's one thing for an Arab army to sweep into the northern coast of Egypt, but it's quite another to cross the entirety of the Sahara Desert. Any Arab invasion would have to come across the Red Sea. You know The Muslims were an epic naval power, but it was certainly something the Islamic Navy could have handled at the time. They did take Spain, after all. They had to cross the Strait of Gibraltar, You know, in Ethiopia, was way closer to Mecca than maybe 90% of the Islamic Empire. But still, they didn't bother. The best explanation I've seen, the most plausible one for why this is, is just that Abyssinia wasn't bothering anyone. And it was a lucrative trading partner, so why ruin a good thing? But there's another explanation, kind of an Islamic legend. And it goes like this the Muslims left the Ethiopians alone because the Abyssinian king was the first head of state to accept, defend, and protect Muslims. More on that soon. This historical take appears to stem from a hadith in which Muhammad was having visions of future conquests, but that vision ended with this warning. said, leave the Ethiopians alone so long as they leave you alone, and leave the Turks alone so long as they leave you alone. Now, there's nothing in that to suggest that the reason was because of Abyssinian holiness or hospitality. You see the other group included in that, the Turks. There was nothing holy about them, especially in the 7th century. The Turks referenced here are not the people in the place we now know as Turkey, because the Turks are not really from Turkey, or Anatolia as it was known before they arrived. You know, that's not a knock on Turks. Really, no group of people is actually where they're from. You know, the English did not just sprout from the ground in England, nor did the Chinese, nor did the natives of the Americas and Australia, nor did anyone else. You know, anyway, the Turks, the Turks were a fierce steppe people, a nomadic tribe, not much different from the Mongols. If you see the modern state of Turkmenistan, think, you know, kind of in that area. Their empire was a volatile one with an unstable leadership and very unsteady, ill-defined borders, the Turks I'm talking about here. But in Muhammad's lifetime, this Turkish empire stretched like a belt across the middle of the Asian steppe, from a little east of what is now Ukraine, through the modern states of Kazakhstan and Mongolia, to Manchuria, which is now northern China. They were the steppe people, Asia's version of the Germanic barbarians. What they lacked in civilization They made up for in ferocity and martial skill. And Asian steppe people were particularly great as horsemen and archers. The great empires rarely ventured into the Asian steppe, and the Muslims would be no different. Given this, that the Ethiopians are grouped with the Turks, I think the most likely reading of that hadith is in order to leave the Ethiopians alone, because they're just not worth riling up. Remember that Muhammad was born in the year of the elephant, 570, which was the last time the Abyssinian Empire invaded Mecca. You know, but this time it was just through their proxies to the south in Yemen. And unlike the other empires Muhammad would take down in his vision, which uh, included the Byzantium and the Persian Sassanid empires, Arabia was full of ethnic Ethiopians. Was he con- concerned about the internal threat of that? or just overestimating the military prowess of the Ethiopians? Maybe. There's also this other hadith on the subject that leaves out the Turks. Narrated Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As, the Prophet said, Leave the Abyssinians alone as long as they leave you alone, for it is only the Abyssinian with short legs who will seek to take out the treasure of the Kaaba. So, there's another element on top of everything else. The Abyssinians are probably the only civilization around, the only powerful empire around and near Mecca that knows about or even cares about the Kaaba and what's in it. Again, this goes back to the stories from the year of the elephant. They were coming to smash the entire Kaaba, not just the gods in it, the entire thing. Or so the Arabs say. This is all Arab sources. But, you know, another motivator for the Arabs staying out of of Abyssinia was, possibly, some form of fear. You know, maybe. But that makes for a very lousy story, doesn't it? Who's going to center a podcast episode around that? A much better story. A much better narrative about why Ethiopia has this special status is an act of interfaith hospitality that was repaid in kind over the centuries for no other reason than honor and appreciation. Now that story begins where we left off in the last history episode. Something had to be done for the lower class Muslims, the persecuted Muslims who could not be protected against an increasingly intense and violent repression. The solution became exile. But who would take these people, who belonged to a religion that barely existed, that no one had ever heard of? Muhammad chose the king of Abyssinia, which was pretty logical. He was, after all, the closest monotheist to Mecca, just across the Red Sea. There were actually two journeys to Abyssinia, an earlier one with a few handfuls of people who would soon come back, um, you know, when they heard that Muslims were not being persecuted anymore, they were wrong, and so they went back with even more, this time around 100 people. The leader of this expedition would be Jafar, Muhammad's cousin, Ali's brother, and a son of Abu Talib. And it's this journey that makes the Islamic history books. You know, this group sought asylum with a king called the Nagus. This king of Abyssinia in Islamic sources is referred to as the Negus. Don't hear that as anything else, please. Negus rhymes with Las Vegas, N E G U S. Negus, I believe, means king in whatever the Abyssinian language was at the time, which would be a Semitic language called Gaiz. But it also seems to be a proper name for this specific king, called the Nagus, or simply Nagus, in the Islamic histories. I've seen his name in the Hadith as Ashama, and I've also seen him called Najashi, which is his Arabic name. But Nagus is the name you mostly see. The history of this king is pretty slim, and if he hadn't printed coins, we may not even know his actual name. So understand, anything about this guy is from Islamic sources. I mean, that's that's just uh, one of the unfortunate things about history. Have you ever thought how little we know about history just because so many civilizations never bothered to write anything down? I feel such an intense sense of loss whenever I think about that. Anyway, we basically have to take the Muslim's word for it when it comes to this king. Even for the story about how Negus became the king to begin with comes from the outsiders, the Arabs. This story comes from several Muslims, none of which are Muhammad, to be clear. Although one source is Aisha, Muhammad's wife. The Abyssinians have no story, so the Muslims tell this one about a man who went from royalty to slavery to king. Now listen to this story and think about which biblical figure this sounds like. The Negus, they use that word as a proper noun for a shama or najashi, when he is the king who will welcome the Muslims eventually, and we'll get to that. But in the beginning, uh, the Negus was just a prince. So the Negus's father was the king when he was a boy, and he was an he was an only child. That's an important part of the story. So he's an only child, but his uncle had twelve children. So those 12 got together and decided to kill Nagus's father, who was the current king. Under the law at the time, apparently, you know, if Nagus was young enough, the king's brother would take the throne rather than him. Their justification for this was that this would secure the family line. You know, having only one child was a risk for the dynasty. So they kill the king, and Nagus grows up with his uncle as the king. Negus turned out to be pretty brilliant, so they were worried that other powerful people might want to make him the king, and install him on the throne. And in this story, like Hamlet, I think he knows what happened to his father. I think he knows that he was murdered. So he'd probably kill all of his twelve cousins if he had the chance. The uncle, now king, doesn't have the heart to kill Negus though, so instead he sells him as a slave. That same day, the uncle king gets struck by lightning and he dies. And the elites of Abyssinia are in a panic. They find out the 12 sons of the uncle are all idiots. You know, in this story, it just happens instantly They're like, oh my God, everyone's a moron. So then they find out what happened to Negus. So they go out to find him and they take him from the merchant who had bought him and they crown him king. But that's not all. The merchant comes looking for his money. He had, after all, paid the twelve cousins a lot of money for Nagus, I think just earlier that day or the day before, and he wanted a refund. So the case comes before Nagus himself, presiding as judge over the man who had bought him. Nagus tells his cousins to either refund the money or, if I'm reading this right, take the youngest one into slavery. So they agreed to pay back the money. So not only did their plot fail, they didn't profit anything from it either. So in the Bible, who else had 12 siblings? You know, of course, these were not Natus' siblings. They were his cousins, but it's close enough. Who else was sold into slavery and became a great man afterward and stood in judgment over the people who had sold him into slavery? That would be Muhammad's favorite Old Testament figure, Joseph. So many elements are there, including the youngest, a substitute for Benjamin, being put in danger due to the stupidity of his older brothers. So the odds that this story really happened are almost zero, at least from a historical perspective. But from a religious point of view, it's very significant. And it's still a fun story, isn't it? The Muslims are setting up a sort of Old Testament king here. The king was just and wise and apparently merciful. I I never see anything about him killing the 12 who killed his father. This was the character to which Jaffer and the other Muslims were entrusting their lives. So now, at last, we will get to the actual story of the Muslim refugees and the Christian king. For the refugees, so far, exile in Abyssinia was going very well. The Muslims were safe and worshipped freely, but then the Meccans sent an envoy to retrieve them. The goal was to bring the Muslims back in chains by both fooling and bribing the Negus. The Meccans brought splendid gifts, particularly the finest leather works in Mecca. Apparently the Ethiopians loved all things leather at the time, and Mecca was very good at that. So the bad guys from Mecca get an audience with the king, give the gifts, and start trying to drive a religious wedge between the king and the Muslims. The Meccan envoy calls them fools who do not follow their own religion or the Christian religion of Abyssinia. They just invented their own religion. At this point, it's unclear what the Negus knows about the Muslims' religion. It appears, though, that at this point, he still doesn't have a very in-depth knowledge about Islam. I think he just accepted them as refugees without asking too many questions. Or, alternately, he may have just thought they were refugees from a pagan land seeking religious asylum in a godly kingdom. Regardless, the Nagus refuses to give them up. That is, at least until he hears them out. So he summons the Muslims to his court, and Jafar speaks for the group. So you have not only the Negus, who is probably versed in Christian theology, the Bible, and all that, but also all his bishops have been summoned. So here's Jaffer, a guy who worshipped stones a few years ago, having to justify his new faith before the most educated religious minds in Abyssinia. No pressure, Jaffer, really. So the king asks Jaffer, what is this religion? that you would both forsake your own and not adopt ours? Fair question. Jafar and the other Muslims had decided ahead of time not to try to do anything clever. No sophistry, none of that. They would just speak what Muhammad had taught them and no more. You know, the exact same strategy Jesus gave to his disciples in the Gospel of Luke. And he said, When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. So here is a Muslim in front of a Christian king, basically relying on the Holy Spirit to save his people. Jaffer says, O king, we were an uncivilized people, worshiping idols, eating corpses, committing abominations, breaking natural ties, treating guests badly, and our strong devoured our weak. Thus we were until God sent us an apostle. Jafar goes on to tell the king about the morality Muhammad had brought to Mecca and the idea of the one true God, how he taught them to fast and pray and take care of the poor, then about how the Meccans had attacked them and tried to force them into idol worship, how they had chosen his country Abyssinia, because they knew they would not be treated unjustly. And then the negus asked whether they had anything from God. Jafar tells him about the Quran and reads the beginning of the Sura of Mary, which would become Sura 19 eventually. It was a good choice. The negus, apparently weeping, said, Of a truth, this and what Jesus brought have come from the same place. Then he turned toward the Meccans and said, You two may go, for by God, I will never give them up. So the two Meccans left, but they weren't ready to give up, and they devised another plan. It was a Hail Mary, pun fully intended on that one. It might not work, but you had to try something. Quick aside for my non-American audience, um... Hail Mary is a common term in my country for something that would take a miracle to succeed. It comes from American football when a team is trailing with little time left on the clock and they're nowhere near where they need to be. So they just heave the ball down the field and pray that the right person catches it. It's a play with very little chance of working, but it's better than just giving up and losing the game. You're basically throwing out a prayer, thus the term Hail Mary, which is a famous prayer often associated with Catholicism. Okay, so... Here was the Meccan Hail Mary. Their play was to go back to the Negus the next day and tell him to ask the Muslims about Mary. He would tell the Negus that Muslims believed Mary to be nothing more than a creature or a slave. Now, I haven't really been able to figure out what he meant by this exactly. And I doubt a Meccan pagan had a ton of knowledge about the Christian religion. But the object was to highlight that the Muslims do not believe what the Christians believe about Jesus and Mary. That Mary is not exalted in Islam, as in Christianity. So, the negus takes the bait and summons the Muslims to talk about Jesus. Jaffer, as before, simply speaks what he knows from Muhammad. We say about him what our prophet has taught us, that he is the salve of God and his apostle and his spirit and his word, which he cast into Mary the Blessed Virgin. For those who don't know, the Islamic Jesus was also born of the Virgin Mary. And that was enough for the Nagus. And this sets up probably the most famous scene from the Nagus and the Muslims. The King takes a stick from the ground and says, "'By God, Jesus, Son of Mary, does not exceed what you have said by the length of this stick." Now, that is a bit confusing, so there is an alternate version of this that appears to have been popularized throughout the years. In the better version, Nagus uses the stick to draw a line, saying, What separates us is no thicker than this line. Or, using his royal scepter, the king draws the line and says, the difference between us and you is no thicker than this line. And that's a beautiful story, isn't it? I'm not even going to bring up how weird it is that a king seems to have sticks and dirt in his throne room. So the Nagus refuses to give them up, promises to find anyone who curses the Muslims, and returns all of the gifts, calling them bribes, which they were. So hooray for a good government. Not for a mountain of gold will I give them up, he says. And the Muslims came to feel the same way about Nagus. After this, a civil war broke out. You know, it's Ethiopia after all. And there were rumors of a great battle. The Muslims decided to go to the battle site because if the Negus lost, they might need to find a new home very, very quickly. So they needed this information as soon as possible. They got near the site, but the Nile River was in the way. Now, for those who don't know, a tributary of the Nile called the Blue Nile goes through the western part of Ethiopia, and this is likely where that battle was. So, one of the largest rivers in the world was between the Muslims and some pretty critical news. So, one of the Muslims, the youngest among them, put an inflated water skin under his chest and swam across as the other Muslims prayed for the Nagus to win his battle. Eventually, that young man came back with great news. The Nagus had won, and God had destroyed his enemies. In an alternate tale, the Nagus summons Jafar and gives him boats just in case he, had, you know, he, he would lose the battle. But Jafar never would need them. In that story, it appears that the Islamic sources are trying to portray the Nagus as a quasi-Muslim, and that his people were revolting because of that. This version seems... Quite unlikely, historically at least. I could be wrong, of course, but it just seems extremely unlikely that these 100 people could be playing such an outsized role in a giant kingdom like Abyssinia. But with God, it's possible, right? But from a historical perspective, the first story about seeking news of the great battle is more likely to be true. It was likely just a random power struggle rather than some kind of religious revolt. Honestly, I would bet almost no one in the kingdom even knew about the Muslims or what they believed. Either way, the Muslims stayed happily in Abyssinia, and Nagus could always count on their support. Many of these Muslims actually stayed in Abyssinia for a pretty long time. Jafar himself didn't join the Muslims in Medina until 628. The Nagus died in 631, the year before Muhammad's death. Word eventually got back to Mecca about this, although you know it was probably Medina. I believe he was there at the time. You know, and Muhammad took the news as if he had lost one of his own people. There are several very reliable hadiths about this. Actually, um, here's one from Sahih al-Bukhari, narrated Jabir. When Nagus died, the Prophet said, "Today, a pious man has died." So, get up and offer the funeral prayer for your brother, Ashama. So, did the Negus die a Muslim? I'm not really sure. A lot of the Muslim sources claim this, but I think that's mostly wishful thinking on their part. If the Negus had really converted to Islam, he would have made sure his kingdom did as well, or at least that his successor did. And surely they would have eventually joined the Islamic Empire in some way or you know, there would have been at least one Muslim ruler of Abyssinia. Um, you know, this never happened. So as far as I know, there's no evidence that Nagus converted, other than the fact that Muhammad wanted to give him Muslim funeral rites. It's quite an honor. There's also a theory that he was kind of a secret Muslim to prevent a remote, you know, a revolt among his people. I, I doubt he actually converted, but keep in mind that the Nagus did proclaim, at least according to the Muslim sources, that essentially the surah of Miriam came from God. He said that that surah 19, which Jaffa read to him in their first meeting, or should I say recited to him in their first meeting, it wasn't written down, but that's according to Muslim sources, and they're just the only ones that we have for this. This story is particularly special to me. Um, I really love it because, like the negus. I've had spiritual reactions to hearing the Quran sometimes. You know, for the record, I have no systematic theology regarding Christianity and Islam, at least not a personal lockdown systematic theology that explains my affinity for Islam and Muhammad and all that. And, you know, that would explain how I can feel this way, in addition to my belief that Jesus really was the Messiah and the Son of God and fully divine. If I had funding to take about five to 10 years off to figure it out, I might, might come up with something good on that subject. What I'd really like to see is a good faith Christian theology of Islam, and one that is written without the constraints of a particularly you know, religious sect. And as far as I know, this does not exist. There are major barriers to this line of thinking, One, mostly theologians are ordained in one tradition or another and therefore can't entertain anything like incorporating Islamic anything into Christianity. You're going to run afoul of some higher-ups and probably donors. And two, no one in the politically correct world of academia would ever touch this. A great way to get canceled would be to define an outside faith through your own faith, which I suppose I'm kind of doing anyway. It would be called Orientalism or Colonialism or some form of random prefix with the word phobe or ist after it, and it would speak to the most powerful and loudest people in society, regardless of whether it made any sense. Uh, Funny, this is starting to sound like a a book idea. If someone knows a brave publisher who is also completely insane and would be interested in that, please email me. But I should say some good work has been put forward over the years. Although it tends to veer toward just how the religions should talk to each other. Or Christian or Muslim apologetics. And if you don't know what that is, apologetics is basically the practice of defending your religion. There's a great deal of understanding in all that. But ultimately, you're just studying the other religion to refute it or to gain converts. One person who veered a different way was Louis Messignan. Uh Messignon in particular, it's a M-A-S-S-I-G-N-O-N, is a fascinating figure to me personally. Um, he walked the line right up to syncretism, which would be the fusion of Christianity and Islam but always managed to stay on the right side of the Pope. He was actually influential in what eventually became the Nostra Aetate Declaration of the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, which made this the official Catholic position on Islam. Um, the Nostra Aetate Declaration states, the church regards with esteem also the Muslims. They adore the one God, living and subsisting in himself, merciful and all-powerful, the creator of heaven and earth, who has spoken to men. They take pains to submit wholeheartedly to even his inscrutable decrees, just as Abraham, with whom the faith of Islam takes pleasure in linking itself, submitted to God. Though they do not acknowledge Jesus as God, they revere him as a prophet. They also honor Mary, his virgin mother. At times they even call on her with devotion. In addition. They await the day of judgment when God will render their deserts to all those who have been raised up from the dead. Finally, they value the moral life and worship God especially through prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. Since in the courses of since in the course of centuries, not a few quarrels and hostilities have arisen between Christians and Muslims, this sacred synod urges all to forget the past and to work sincerely for mutual understanding and to preserve as well as to promote together. For the benefit of mankind's social justice and moral warfare, moral welfare, as well as peace and freedom. Seriously, if anyone ever manages to reconcile Islam and Christianity, I can almost guarantee it will be the Catholics. They have the time, the will, and the experience. I've met many who were convinced something holy likely happened in Southern Arabia all those years ago. And while they're not ready to jump to a new faith, there is a desire to bring Christianity and Islam as close as possible. Can someone believe in the divine Jesus and the Quran? I think there may have been many people over the years who have, and it's entirely possible that the first of these people was the Negus, the king of Ethiopia, who was undoubtedly a wise and hospitable man. And he was, most likely the first Christian to participate in the world's first Christian-Muslim exchange. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah.